X-Ray. And welcome to the Beervana Show, broadcast in Portland on X-Ray FM and available anywhere on your favorite podcast service. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. How's it going? Yeah, long time no see. <laughs> That's right. Uh, we are now, I actually now do not see you because uh, we are broadcasting from our, or podcasting, or uh, whichever way you listen. <laughs> we are doing it from our own respective homes. Uh, so I'm not seeing you, but I'm hearing you. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Um, I'm. We got. We've had a lot of warmer weather, which you know I don't like, and and today it's been all cloudy this morning, <laughs> so I'm happy as a clam. So you started off well. Well, yesterday was quite a warm day, and uh, as we just referenced, we got together and brewed for the first time in donkey's years, as my mom would say. <laughs> donkey's years. That must be an Englishism. <laughs> yes. Well, I assume. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't even know where it comes from. Hopefully, it's not anything offensive <laughs> with, those old, with, those, with those old expressions you never know that's true that's true well uh, apologies for anyone if we've gone wayward there anyway so we brewed in your uh, in your backyard we did yeah we did we dodged the acorn yeah a uh, big oak tree in the backyard and starting to shed its little pre-acorn acorn things but yeah it was uh actually quite a perfect day it was not so hot we got done before the the extreme heat hit and uh uh, yeah, it was did pretty good too. Yeah, so that, that I have to I have to know uh, is she? Uh, oh yeah, oh yeah, she's blowing well. So we'll we'll we might talk a little bit more about the hops and that, but we can mention that we used a Kvike yeast, uh, which is the the all the all the rage right now. One of those yeast strains that comes from Norwegian farmhouse breweries, uh, and they're uh-huh. very interesting strains of yeast because they're. Uh, they're ale strains that ferment like saison strains at very high temperatures, and um, unlike saison strains, though for the most part they are POF negative. That is to say, they do not have phenolic off flavors, so you only get the esters. They pump out giant esters. We made this beer with these yeasts because we were doing a hoppy beer, and we thought the esters and the hops would go well together. So we pitched it. For people who know anything about who's that, who brewed before, uh, know that you want to have a nice temperate climate for your yeasts. You don't want to shock them. Uh, so that usually means for ale yeasts uh, somewhere in the 60s, typically, uh, you might pitch as much as as high as 70 degrees for some strains. Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit that's right. Uh, and you might be able to do the math. So the rest of the world can follow, can follow yeah. along. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know what that is. That's like... I'm going to say that's like 22 or something, 20, 20, or some, somewhere around in there. Yeah, that's a decent yeah. guess. Uh, but with these strains. Who cares? Who cares? Crazy people. Like going all Celsius on this. That's true. We, uh, we're stuck in our ways. But uh, the, the Kvike strains like to be at up to blood temperature. And so we didn't cool our wort down very much. We pitched at about 85, and that freaked both of us out. And but neither of us, yeah, neither have had the courage to go. Above. That's right. We should have probably <laughs> just cooled to ninety, but freak, too freaked out. And it was, yeah, it was rolling by uh, by about eight o'clock. We had a, a decent pelt of bubbles uh, on the top of the wort, and then before I went to bed, I actually had to switch to the blow off tube because I was a little anxious what, what was going to happen, and it was uh, was really going. Um, it didn't actually ever blow off uh, foam, uh, so yeah, oh, okay. so that, that's actually kind of good because you lose beer that way so um anyway we're getting way too much into the weeds for for people but uh that kvike yeast was a lot of fun it, it started rocking and rolling right away 
That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, we'll talk about our beer later. Yes. So we can we can move on. You know, I realize I haven't introduced you. You're Jeff Allworth, author of several books, including The Beer Bible, The Woodmore Way, and when we were in Steinbart's getting our beer ingredients, your book, Secrets of the Master Brewers, was on the Indeed. Shelf. Go, go buy yourself a copy. Uh, Looked really dusty. I know. I know. <laughs> Joking. It's clearly not a favorite title. <laughs> Big seller. Big seller. They <laughs> right. But they could have just been polite because you were there. Yeah, I, if I was, it was just by myself, they might have copped to the truth. Yeah, our friend Tasha was there, and uh, she said that uh, it was a big seller. But I think that yeah, you're right. That could easily have been a little apple polishing for the customer. Yeah, I slag you off, but that's actually a fantastic uh, book, particularly if you're a home brewer, to get like expert advice and insight on particular beers it's a, it's a it was an awesome concept and a great book. right and that and that, and that insight comes from professional brewers not me so you can trust it and when right. you not trust me <laughs> so soak in the compliment jeff because they're not coming well thank anymore. you All and right. you are uh patrick emerson you're a professor of economics at oregon state university uh uh as of today yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah but yeah both both, that means you're both a professor and Oregon State is still there. So check in next week. Yes. Those two <laughs> things are still true. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, actually, I think Oregon State's okay. I think uh, uh, in this time of um, coronavirus, I think it's actually causing people to think, you know, why do I want to pay out-of-state tuition or pay private tuition if we're just going to be doing a lot of online classwork? And so as I understand, I do not know uh, too much, but... Uh, enrollments at Oregon State are holding pretty steady as people sort of opt for their local state university. Yeah. So, I, I don't want to get you. too far off track here, and I know I always ask you about higher ed because it's a, an interest, an interesting thing <laughs> to me, but it occurred to me, you know, this would be an opportunity for a school like Harvard uh, to just cash in and say, we're opening the floodgates, whoever, we're, we're doing it online, so why not just open the floodgates? But then, of course, that would devalue it for all those people who are paying sixty-five thousand yes. dollars a year. So they're kind of—I bet they're yeah. looking at that and thinking, "Oh, an opportunity, but not quite." No, yeah, exactly. You have to. This is a, a status good, yeah. right? Uh, as they say in economics. So the part of the appeal is its scarcity—the right. select few who who are allowed to study at Harvard. Yep. So I think you're right. Uh, but Oregon State's happy to have you come on down, <laughs> or just log on in and, and join us. <laughs> I was always scheduled to teach online this fall anyway, um, so nothing's changed for me. Um, but uh, the university is going to be doing a blend of hybrid classes, remote classes, on-campus classes. So we'll see. We'll see how yeah, it goes. Yeah, we'll we'll keep checking in because obviously I am fascinated by it. Yeah. So today's show is about hops because we have recently been shining a light on lagers pilsners especially we've done a whole big deep dive into pilsners and local pilsners particularly uh which is all right and appropriate and seasonally appropriate uh but it means we have not been focusing on our other love those glorious northwest hops that have changed the brewing industry so profoundly so today we plan to indulge ourselves by talking all things hops including nerdy stuff like science and indulgent central stuff like juicy ipas uh, this was also uh, spurred on by our our quest to find uh, new and interesting hops to throw into our beer. That's, so that's, uh, we'll talk yep, about that's that. That's right. 
Yeah, so uh, you might have noticed that your IPAs are including uh, lots of new and exciting hops and lots of new flavors are hitting your mouth. So we'll talk about those uh, soon, but first we have to do the news. Brooklyn Brewery's brewmaster, Garrett Oliver, has created the Michael Jackson Foundation for Brewing and Distilling. Uh, it will fund scholarship awards to people of color already in these industries or wishing those who wish to join. Uh, he announced that in a Twitter thread, and uh, when he was describing the foundation, he wrote, This is an affirmative action meant to take our allied industries in a more positive and equitable direction for the future. Barriers to success in these industries have never been solely financial. No one needs to walk this path alone. Uh, and if you follow Garrett on Twitter, you can find uh, his whole thread, which is uh, quite a, a number of, of tweets if you want more information. But um, uh, it's a cool thing. And uh, Garrett Oliver is, I, I hazard to say, the most famous brewer in America. And so he's really well positioned to promote uh, equity in brewing. He's also one of the few black brewers in brewing. And so that mm -hmm. that he's it's wonderful that he's maximizing his platform and and trying to pry open uh what is one of the widest industries in america yeah and he's named his foundation for bring distilling off of the king after the king of pop of course so uh, <laughs> that's, that's right uh other my joke i assume it's the beer writer michael jackson that he's referencing there maybe he's referencing both who knows no, it is the it is the uh, the the famous English beer writer, the Yorkshireman uh, Michael Jackson, whom so uh, Garrett Oliver is one of the kind of early. He's not one of the very first founders uh, of brewing, but I think he got started in the late '80s, mm -hmm. and uh, he knew and was was friends with Jackson. So I think it's a nice homage. Um, and and, and uh, anybody who's traveled to Europe, especially into uh, England, will have talk to brewers that he goes over there a lot and so a lot of times he'll talk to brewers and say oh yeah we just did a collaboration with garrett oliver so he's really uh, england has been a touchstone for his brewing and, and so yeah. in some ways not surprising that he chose michael jackson yeah well that's that's fantastic yeah it was really cool um and uh he th there are if you're interested in this he hasn't quite got uh uh the all the information out so there's just the, tw the twitter thread and i did look to see if the link that he included in that uh was live yet and it's, it's still not live he he he, had, he posted a later one saying he kind of jumped the gun and he thought it was going to be up and running. It's <laughs> not quite up and running but um stay tuned for that there are going to be ways for you to uh support it and uh, you know if you're uh, looking to get involved uh, on the application end i'm sure there's going to be something with that too so stay tuned yeah i think that's great for two levels one because obviously craft beer uh, could use a lot more diversity but also because i think of and i know you think this way too that craft beer is often a lot about community mm -hmm. um and as craft beer becomes smaller and more local uh, uh i think is the trend um it would be great for uh uh communities not just geographical but ethnic and racial communities to to have a place in craft beer as well we know that this is such an important part of structural uh, racism in America is that uh, people of power create groups, you know, where they, which become little power structures mm -hmm. and they tend to reflect the people who are in that group. And, and so they tend to isolate people who are not members of that group. And it's wonderful to see um, more and more people of color, BIPOC folk coming into 
the brewing industry and creating these little groups of, of people who can uh, uh, kind of create some momentum against those those uh, structural problems that we've had. I, I was just listening actually to a podcast by Afro Beer Chick. Uh, she's mm-hmm. uh, on Twitter. You can find her there too. And she's got a podcast. And she was talking to folks in this group called The Syndicate, um, which is uh, only about a year old. And I think it's relatively informal, but it's it's a, a group who formed, um, who are there, they're all black beer fans and people work in the industry and they are doing just that as well more on a kind of grassroots level instead of a a foundation level but it's really wonderful to hear these things starting up and um i'm i'm so so happy to see that uh people are taking it into their own hands and and uh i hope the larger community will be welcoming and uh things will change soon yeah great uh the next bit of news is Ongoing news about the AB InBev acquisition of the Craft Brew Alliance, in which another issue has emerged. A CBA shareholder has sued the company, alleging that when ABI failed to purchase the company as part of a previous negotiation at $24 a share, it drove the valuation so low that they could buy it more cheaply later. He cited a breach of fiduciary duties on the part of CBA. The lawsuit alleges that AB systematically and purposely used its control over the CBA's distribution and sales processes to slow the distribution of CBA's products, thereby artificially lowering the company's results and stock price, <laughs> which is fascinating. So they're, they're alleging active involvement on the part of AB InBev to essentially create a worse situation for CBA so that they could buy it cheaply. Yeah, and I think it's an interesting point. Uh, and I, I don't know anything about the law, but um, it's a little bit of a subtle argument that he's making. He's not just making the, the case that uh, by playing hardball and not buying uh, at this prearranged $24 a share and, and then instead just taking it into the free market, uh, he's alleging that this relationship that's that CBA already had with AB InBev, which depended on AB InBev distributing the beer, gave right. gave them this this leverage over uh, what they could do. So, um, so they could atrophy the company and drive those those stock prices down in advance yeah. of this. And I think that's a fascinating and, and disturbing, if it's true, uh, allegation. Yeah, I don't know. Um, uh, antitrust is not my specialty, but I can tell you a couple things um, that I'm reasonably confident about. One is that market data alone is not going to work, uh, I don't think, in this. So if you, if you say that, look, CBA sales went down, um, there's no counterfactual. It's going to be very hard to make a causal claim that that's because of AB uh, InBev actions. So it's going to take some kind of real evidence uh, to suggest that AB InBev uh, actively tried to uh, curtail the sales of CBA beers, um, which would probably be some kind of memo, email, right. those kinds of things. Um, and it would be interesting if, if they have that. I suspect they don't, but who knows? Right. Uh, although on the other hand, they... They did do the lawsuit, and I assume this guy's lawyers probably uh, mentioned that what you just said. So perhaps maybe, maybe that means that he does. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I mean, here's the here's the thing. Like you could say that perhaps right after that um, that window where they could buy it at twenty four dollars a share passed, you you can see sales data that sort of shows it uh, on a new trajectory, a new downward trajectory, and then suggest, look, this, this timing is, 
is more than coincidence. But it's just really hard to sort of make a true claim of causality. Uh, AB InBev will certainly arm itself with uh, good lawyers and economists to say that there's no way in which you can make that kind of causal statement here. But but who knows? It all it all it all uh, comes down to uh, if if it gets there, it all comes down to a jury. So it's certainly a, a lot of interesting intrigue. So fun for us. Yeah. Okay, so that's all the news fit to print <laughs> for today. So let's move on to our main topic. Uh, our main topic today is all about hops. Uh, and hops come up uh, a lot uh, and have uh, featured in our show many times in the past. Um, but this is a good moment, I think, to stop and talk about them again because there's just a whole lot of new and interesting hops. Um, and not just new and interesting, but hops that are now like mainstays in in uh, in core sort of IPA brewing for craft beer. Yeah, so many that it's actually hard for us to keep up. Uh, even hardcore fans like us, I, I have a hard time. Uh, <laughs> I'll I'll see a name and think I have a vague memory of that thing, but I don't know <laughs> what it is. And, uh, yeah, do you think that the that the breeding is now? Be, I, I assume that because of the popularity. And growth of craft beer obviously the 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 hop uh crops have grown but this sort of um the dynamism in hops the the act of breeding and and crossbreeding and coming trying to come up with new and uh, interesting varieties it seems to just be accelerating continuously yeah it it really does it seems like uh, there are three or four groups including now uh uh public groups, which is kind of cool, uh, who are actively working to uh, get these process, these, these uh, new products out there and uh, new varieties out there. And it's, you know, it, it, it takes a decade. So it's a really intensive process. So you, if you set up the infrastructure mm-hmm. uh, to do one, you might as well keep them going. So the group who did Citra and Mosaic are the same, it's the same company. And then Hopsteiner uh, is, a, is another one uh, that I think they know, Sabro too. Uh, also is is the same group that did Citroen Mosaic. So um, for Ooh, the... They're, they're on a winning streak. Yeah, that's, nice. that's right. So for the people um, who are able to place these in the marketplace uh, and, and have them be really successful, all that begins to pay off. And if you don't, I mean, that 10 years and thousands and thousands of plants that you've you know been, been trying to <laughs> cultivate, um, it's probably a really expensive venture. So um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's totally interesting. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So yesterday, uh, when we decided to brew, we had a vague notion of what we wanted to brew. We were going to brew, well, <laughs> well, we were going to brew a pale ale, uh, uh, but you went a little crazy with the ingredients. Um, and we essentially brewed an IPA, but we didn't, we left the hop question open. Uh, we wanted to see what hops were available, what seemed new and exciting. And so we, we trotted down to Steinbart's, our local homebrew shop. And uh, found some interesting hops, uh, including uh, Medusa, which we can talk about, Wakatu, and then Comet and Sabra, which are a little less exotic. But the Medusa and the Wakatu were new to us. Yes. Uh, Well, actually, I was was familiar with uh, Wakatu, but only as a name. Um, I haven't. We haven't brewed with it. Brewed with it, right. Yeah. So... And uh, Comet, which it was a super fascinating hop. We talk about that hop later, but it's it's another one of those ones that I, I've known about. And uh, our friends at Breakside actually like it. Ben Edmonds loves that hop. Um, it's an old hop. It's not new, uh, but I've never brewed with it. And it seemed like a cool hop. And one of the coolest things that are, are about our 
time yesterday was opening those little pouches up and poking our noses in and seeing what was going on because the, the, every single one of these smelled very interesting and unusual. Yeah, <laughs> they sure did. Uh, and um, the uh, Medusa hop, maybe you were familiar with this, but uh, I learned at the time because we were looking these up at the time. Medusa hop is so named because it is a, a multi-headed uh, hop. I forget what the term. Yeah, multi-head. Uh, Multi-head. Okay, I did get the term right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a multi-headed hop, and there, in fact, right next door to it, uh, in the in the uh, cooler, was a, a multi-head hop. It, right? Isn't that what it was called? Yeah, and I, maybe if Stan Hieronymus listens to this, he can tell us or if that's the same <laughs> hop or what, because uh, it seems like they're kind of the same hop, but all they had really different alpha acids. So. I don't know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So how, how how should we uh, approach approach the hops? I was thinking we could start talking about some of the the big hitters right now that you're seeing, um, and then we can start talking about some of the newer ones. Well, in order to ramp up for that, I'm going to open this beer that I have in front of me. Ah. All right. Well, if you're if you're going to do that, then I will join you. Because uh, this beer has some of these weird hops in them, so that's fun. All right. So tell us what you're opening. Uh, I am opening and pouring right now. Uh, actually, <laughs> I'm pouring it, so I can't tell you what it is because my memory is so bad. It's a, Van- <laughs> it's a Vancouver brewery, cut, uh, Vancouver, Washington brewery called uh, Fortside. And this is a beer called Newest Exclamation Point IPA. And it's a rotating, it's a little bit like uh, Ecliptic's Vega that we've mentioned recently, where it's a rotating mm-hmm. thing and they put new hops in. And this one has Sultana. Idaho mm-hmm. Seven and Sabro, so ah. yeah, so that's going to be fun. And it's um, as I pour it out, it is a honey color, and it actually looks quite a bit like honey because it's it's not exactly hazy, but it's um, it's not clear either. So it's kind of got that semi-transparent quality that honey has. Uh, and we don't have. Oh, sorry, I'm not. My beer is in front of the mic, so my my mouth is not. Uh, we don't have uh, Edwina with us. I know time. the loss of Edwina makes this really hard. Um, <laughs> but I, I did try to, to give you some some audio. Yeah, I'm holding it up to my headset and trying to crack it, and then that's awkward. And yeah, the whole thing's awkward. All right, so I have. I'm gonna open up my my little blind here, so I can really get the sunlight through. Uh, what I'm opening up is the um, uh, Fort George's Three Way IPA, which is an annual. Uh, IPA they brew with two other breweries. This year, it, that those change from year to year. This year, they brewed in collaboration with Level Beer of Portland, uh, who we featured on the podcast before, and Structures Brewing of Bellingham, Washington. And this is an IPA that uh, features uh, Simcoe, Citra, and Chinook, as well as Azaka uh, hops. Very cool. Uh, it is. Uh, absolutely a hazy. <laughs> yep. It's a, it's a hazy, hazy. That's uh, a uh, beautiful head and, and very aromatic. Um, I do have one other beer. I'll, I'll reveal it later, but it also it, it also features this Azaka hop. So this Azaka hop is new to me, but apparently not new to brewers, and they're, li- and they're liking it. That's right. It's, it, it is this, I would say, sometime around. So the... The, this all really took off in about 2007 when the Citra hop was developed. It was one of the first hops. So historically, 
for 50 years or more, probably since Prohibition, the entire hops industry has been built around bittering hops. So those are right. the hops that you put in the front of the boil just to add that bitterness. Very often, um, they're used in light lagers, and so you're not even looking for flavors or aromas because those are mostly absent anyway. You're just trying to get as much bitterness for as little expense as possible. But then, uh, after the turn of the century, um, the craft brewery started to pr- approach uh, these hop companies and the Hop Research Council and say, we would like you to study and develop hops that have flavor and aroma that are very different. And it turns out uh, everybody was very excited about that because instead of trying to get hops that would drive them out of business because they're really just trying to use as few as possible, um, now now, uh, craft brewers are looking for great wads of incredibly flavorful and aromatic hops. And so that first citra hop development um, worked in conjunction with Widmer and uh, Sierra Nevada, and there might have been one other brewery there. Oh, is that right? Yeah, they helped them develop that. I think they may have even been involved in in providing some funds, but they certainly uh, were working with the uh, hops that uh, that company that made Citra and Mosaic is called the Hops Hop Breeding Company, mm-hmm. um, and you know uh, old timers will remember. I think it was X one fourteen or something like that. It had as right. you know, yes. yeah that name. I'm an old timer. I remember that. one. That's right. <laughs> uh, and it worked. And of course, now that Citra's become this amazing uh, rock star in the beer world, which we'll talk about a little bit later on about how big a rock star it is, but. Um, so then what happened is all the attention shifted to producing hops that would have these really rich aromas and flavors uh, very often in um, uh, what we used to be called derisively uh, the wild American spectrum. Um, so a lot mm. of citrus, a lot of tropical fruits, just a lot of intense, punchy flavors uh, and aromas. And so then just a jillion of these things have come out uh, and they, and they're hard to keep up with. I don't think Azaka is actually all that recent a hop, you know, it's, I think it's been around. <laughs> Probably not. No, <laughs> but by the way, just doubling back. So I remember when Widmer was uh, doing its experimental X114 IPA and I thought, wow, this is awesome. And now Citra has basically just taken over the world. It has totally taken over the world. That's right. <laughs> Citra is in everything. <laughs> Yeah, because so, it gives you that it gives you that clean. I mean, it's well named. It gives you that really clean citrus flavor. So all of these sort of really citrusy, juicy IPAs kind of evolved, I think, along with the citra hop, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it was a great it was a great hop to kick everything off because it it was a it, it you know citrus is kind of the, the the characteristic of American hops that is most I think you know most quintessential. So Cascade is is maybe the most important American hop. It was very citrusy, floral and citrusy. So when you have Citra come out, it, it's a it's like Cascade on on steroids. Uh, but it's still in a familiar flavor profile, and then it, it sparked interest in more intense flavors. And then, well, if we can get this kind of lemony uh, character, what happens? You know, can we get passion fruit? Can we get guava? Can we get mango? And and then right off to the races by the way this three-way ipa is really good <laughs> yeah i think it is a really good one this year um mm. 
I can't remember if it was last year's. This is this is a thing of old minds. Uh, there was one that stands out in my mind uh, as as the best ever, and I can't remember if it was last year or two years ago. Um, and I would say it this was two years ago. Two and years it was ago, Ru- yeah. With Rubens, I remember that one. Yeah, that's the one. Uh, I would say this is not uh, not in that legendary status, but it's not it's not bad. It's it's, it's not far off. Yeah, it's 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 good work, and uh, I, I'm impressed. Mine, yeah, by just... the way, is uh, so. This is an experience I have, and probably many people have, uh, of of one of just uh, unfamiliarity. This has so many weird flavors and aromas. I I can't really place where they all come from. Uh, there is some citrus, but there's also kind of a cream sickle thing, which is probably oh, right. the sabro. Yeah, it's not quite coconut, but it's uh, it's kind of like that. There's mm-hmm. something a little bit uh, in that mint eucalyptus spectrum. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe tending a little bit towards lemongrass, something like that. Uh, there's some, and then it's offset by. Uh, like blackberries or some kind of dark berry that's in there as well. So, you know, we, we used to have a grid of the flavors and aromas of hops and uh, <laughs> there's that grid has grown so big now. Yeah. It's a very interesting beer. Yeah. Mine, mine has a lot of, I think more classic flavors and sort of a little bit citrus, also a little bit um, kind of uh, uh, maybe uh, apricot nectarine. Mm-hmm. Sort of, um, but one my one criticism of it is, uh, and I'm very sensitive to alcohol. It's a bit heavy. It's a seven point two percent beer, and I can I can taste the alcohol, um, which I I consider for, for my palate. It's an off an off flavor. I don't I don't appreciate it. I got to give uh, Fortside Brewing big props. Their beer is seven point one percent, and I can't taste yeah. it at all. I would guess it's like below six it's really uh it's really well and well concealed and i'm with you that's probably, probably yeah. not a good thing i get alcohol in the nose and a little alcohol on the on the on the palate but a lot of people like that they like that boozy sort of that boozy note so um i don't need to suggest that it's a it's a it's a flaw but it's for me it's um not quite in my wheelhouse yeah i agree uh but we follow the hops. Okay, so we had Citra that came along. Uh, it's now you you uh, you sent along some stats, and now I'm looking. Yeah, let's talk about those. These came out yesterday. Well, oh, uh, actually, they came they, they came to me yesterday. I think the they're the USDA hops thing. They may have they may have come out a little bit before that, but I saw them yesterday when Stan Hieronymus sent out his. Uh, hops newsletter that he does. Uh, I see. Yeah. So when I called Citra the king of hops, that's because uh, the variety Citra has uh, 19% of the total hop acreage. This is in the U.S., right? That's right. The yeah, we these are only American hops. The stuff that I sent you. Yeah. So it it's it's got one fifth of the market entirely is Citra, <laughs> Citra basically. Yeah. <laughs> Which and, uh, and, it, and it's growing too. It's uh, it's gone up from uh, uh, from nine thousand acres to eleven thousand acres in one year. So in one year, twenty. Yeah, twenty five percent growth. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, there are I don't know probably fifty varieties of hops grown in the United States. Um, 
maybe maybe not quite that many. Uh, but anyway, a lot. And so <laughs> having 20% market share is not bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, These days, yeah, there's a lot of competition. Yeah, and in fact, we we have a list of the, the, the top 10 varieties, and they constitute, this is interesting, given that there are dozens of varieties out there, the top 10 constitute uh, two-thirds of all hops sold, uh, grown in America, uh, which is interesting. Um, yes. And, and when you look down at it, there's only one on here that is a is a is a traditional bittering hop. Uh, it's the CTZ, which is actually the second most grown hop. But um, but beyond that, all these others are what we might say are uh, IPA hops. <laughs> um, so we can really see. You can just look at if we were uh, if I'd been smarter, I would have done this. Uh, if we looked at one of these uh, <laughs> lists lists from the USDA from you know like 2005, uh, it would it would be the opposite. There would be maybe one aroma hop on there, one IPA hop, and then everything else would be bittering hops. Yeah. So it's uh, it's really, things have really changed. Yeah, and speaking of, uh, uh, sort of the, the past big hitter was the Cascade hop, which for years basically characterized almost most of American IPAs. Uh, the Cascade note was the classic, and it's, it's uh, going down precipitously um, it's down 24% in acreage from 2019. So just as, you know, basically Citra has, t- has gone up by 25%, uh, Cascade's gone down by 25% last year. And then you have comparing with five years ago, uh, there were 7,000 acres devoted to Cascades and now there's only 4,000. So that's a 42% decline in the acreage devoted to Cascades. So that shows you how much the, the flavor profile of IPAs has changed. That's yeah, it's it's true. And in the case of Cascade, so I, I try I try to always be hip and with it and not talk like an old man. But I got to tell you, uh, Cascade is one of the great hops, and so I, I that makes that hurts my heart a little bit. In fact, <laughs> even yesterday when we were standing there, I was thinking, I almost said to you, "Well, we could just do Cascades as the bittering hop." Uh, <laughs> well, you know, uh, I've noted, and I can't actually, my brain's too. Uh, feeble to come up with a specific example, but I'm starting to see more of these kind of old school slash new school IPAs that feature some more sort of piney floral uh, cascade notes alongside some of the more modern kind of citrusy fruity uh, notes. Absolutely, yeah, and I think you're drinking one. Um, the the I think there's this this kind of move to put in a few uh, the, and, and it's interesting because the beer that i'm drinking does not did not do this and it's it's really noticeable so you put in an anchor flavor mm-hmm. right that's really familiar yeah. like a cascade or a centennial something that's very citrusy piney that's that's super familiar yep. and then you can build those other flavors around it uh and i think i think there's a way in which consumers probably really uh enjoy having the familiarity along with the uh the difference so you get you don't you don't you're not leaping off the edge of the world. Yeah, so don't despair too much, Jeff. Cascade's still got a place in the world here. <laughs> I think that's right. And I mean, they still are, what is it, like the fifth best, the, the fifth most popular still, something like that? Uh, yes, they're the fifth most popular. They have 5% of the total acreage. So it's not so bad. No. All is, all is not lost. No, I don't think Cascade will, will disappear entirely. It's too good a hop. It is, and it's in fact it's so good that it's it's grown in uh, the UK, it's grown in Germany, it's grown in a lot of places because it's such an amazing hop. It's like it's like Hollertau, you know that, and Saws. These are some of these 
hops that are so famous are now grown in other places because they're they're such great hops. Yeah. What was uh, interesting, and, and I know this has been a while now, so this makes sense. But you know, when when uh, when we went over to the UK together, um, when you were doing research for the the beer bible, uh, when the brewers over there were doing an American style IPA, it was always basically they did one thing they took they, they took their recipe and added some cascades <laughs> right right that, it, and it has totally changed which is yeah. uh <laughs> in fact um why don't i use that as an opportunity to talk about some some international uh strains that are coming out because there's some really cool stuff that's happening uh in the world and it i, I gotta say it all comes back to the United States. We were the first ones to do these new developing, to develop hops uh, starting in the 1970s. Uh, and it really picked up, you know, probably in the 90s and, and early 2000s. Mm -hmm. um, but people, when, when you and I were young men, uh, American hops were considered really inferior. Uh, they were actually mocked by uh, European growers. Uh, they were considered catty, which is uh, a characteristic um <laughs> that that some hops have which is a kind of that kind of ammonia quality yes uh, that's no good uh which is no good and and it, and it probably relates to thiols which are a sulfur compound in hops um that uh that at, at certain high concentrations become offensive it's like it's really great until the moment it's not um and american hops have have that they push that line uh always, including Citra. Citra can get kind of catty on you. But anyway, uh, over the course of years, as people want more and more flavor, people started to say, hey, you know what? Those American hops actually do some pretty cool stuff. And now, uh, in other countries, they are kind of mimicking the United States and growing new and cool stuff. So, for example, uh, Germany has uh, a few new hops. A Koya, which is... Uh, a, it is described as tea-like, spicy, green fruit, and peppery. Mm. Ariana, um, which is one I've I've seen around. It's actually made it into the market. I have never seen a koya anywhere. Uh, it is described as uh, black currant, grapefruit, geranium, and vanilla, which sounds like a description of an American hop. <laughs> it sounds super American. Uh -huh. Uh, Diamant or diamond, uh, is it sometimes called Diamant in German, and I think it's sold in elsewhere sometimes as diamond. Um, it is it is an interesting one in that it is uh, in the German mode, so it, it's derived from Spalter, which is a classic old uh, land race variety, and it's known as it has supposedly has fine and a spicy character. So I'm interested in trying that in a lager sometime. That sounds cool. Uh, and then Solero, again, um, it's going to seem sound really familiar, tropical fruit, mango and passion fruit. And it comes from Cascade. Ah, so everybody's trying to go for these super aroma hops now. This is Germany, right? Yeah. So, I mean, if Germany's doing it, yeah. you know, forget about it. Yeah, I know. Talk uh, about a tradition-bound society. Yeah. In France, they have Barbie Rouge, uh, which is a really strawberry-like uh, beer. I had a uh, you, your three-way there is from uh, includes Level, and they made a, a beer that had a lot of Barbie Rouge, and it was super strawberry, like just strawberry, almost like strawberry candy. Amazing. Um, Mistral, uh, which has rose, melon, and lychee, or lychee, uh, depending on how you pronounce that. 
I always, I've always said lychee, and elixir, which is tropical fruit, orange, tangerine, and uh, a word that the French use a lot, which I don't know what it means, white fruits. So maybe that means white wine. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, yeah. Good point. <laughs> and, and then uh, Slovenia, who knew, uh, is rocking a whole bunch of new stuff. So Slovenia is, is um, a, a classic hop producing uh, a region, but um, but they've gotten on the new breeding system, and now they have all these Styrian versions. So uh, they have Styrian Cardinal, Styrian Dragon, Styrian Eagle, and Styrian Wolf, and these are all just like straight out of the Yakima Willamette Valley uh, handbook. Mm-hmm. Pineapple, orange, lime, guava, jasmine, uh, grapefruit, lemon, rose, banana, caramel, menthol, candied orange, mango, melon, coconut, lemongrass, passion fruit. These are all the, the descriptions of all of these. So it's kind of amazing how the interest in, in, in hops that got started in, in, here in, in the Northwest has now spread out. And people are, are cultivating hops to try to find these, these classic, what you, know, what you might, for lack of a better word, think of as an IPA hop. Yeah. By the way, uh, as you were talking, I was opening my other beer, uh, which is a Rubens from Seattle. Uh, Hazelicious. IPA. Uh, it is not quite as opaque as uh, the three-way, and it's also not quite as strong. It's a 6% uh, IPA, so kudos. Right. <laughs> that's, not my, that's not up my alley. Uh, it is hazy, but um, uh, a little more translucent. A little more light's coming through. It's not quite as milkshakey. <clears throat> and it features uh, Citra, of, uh, of course, uh, and also Strata and uh, Comet, so you like nice. you like that, right? And uh, Azaka again, uh, and this one is really, um, really quite lovely. Uh, it's uh, pretty strong in passion fruit, particularly I think. So we did a weird mind melt thing, and I also purchased one of these uh, <laughs> yeah. earlier today, and I had it with lunch because I was thinking, you know, we need a Sherpa, and I haven't uh, because of the coronavirus, my my wanderings have not been very far, and and I. I love Rubens. We visited Rubens when we were in Seattle. Yeah, great. People. Uh, and, and they're really good. I mean, I think they're they make they make a huge variety of beers. But I, I think of them as an IPA house. They that seems to be what they really love to do. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I quite liked it too. I, I felt it had the sessionability I really like, mm-hmm. uh, which is was really nice. Yeah. Um, I didn't know it had Comet though. That's super cool. Yeah, it's got Comet. Uh, so by the by the way, was it the Comet package that we? Uh, so these little hot packages have the the applications like what are the what are the uses and so they might say something like I don't know pilsner or Belgian you know sour or something right. like that. And the common package said <laughs> lagers and ales, <laughs> <laughs> which I think you tweeted as well. But I did. That really helps narrow things. It down. really helps narrow things down. Like okay, now I understand where you use these ones. Uh, so anyway, yeah, I thought you'd be happy that comment. It's part of their, their, but this is really good. I'm, I'm really liking this. This is actually right in my wheelhouse. I, as I mentioned many times before, I think that age has a factor in, in alcohol. Uh, that as I get older, I like lighter beers, um, and uh, so this one, this one's more in my in my wheelhouse at six percent. Uh, it's got a lovely aroma, a really nice balance between uh, that sort of sweet citrusy flavors, but a nice bitter backbone, um, which for me I prize. 
You know, another thing that I noticed about it that I really liked uh, was that it was hazy, but it was not uh, very sweet. It was pretty dry, and it was—it's not very thick and uh, viscous on the on the tongue, which I got to say is not my favorite thing. Yes, yes, and that's part of the sessionability, I think, right? Because yeah, uh, if it just if it just sits on your tongue, it's sort of cloying a bit. Um, yeah, you don't. That's what you want is a nice clean tongue, and you want to wash it again with the same drink. So yeah, I, I agree entirely. Uh, yeah, I think it's uh, it's delightful, and yeah, Rubens is one of those go-to breweries. I think that uh, they tend to do most things really well. So, I had all right, a, what I the had, hell? I had high confidence. We've come up with a sherpa. <laughs> <laughs> we both had confidence, and we were rewarded. Clearly, it's available at least in Washington, Oregon. I don't know how how much further, but um, there you go. So let's take a shift. So we've talked to, uh, we've talked a lot about these new. Uh, hop varieties that are taking over the world. Uh, everyone's going for these super aroma hops. So let's talk about utilization of hops and how these new hops are are utilized. They're no longer just kind of providing that bitter background. Yeah. So this was a super interesting thing. One of um, w- when Americans started making IPAs, they started brewing with them differently than any humans on the planet had ever brewed with hops. And I'm not just blowing smoke up anybody's whatever. Uh, <laughs> That's actually true. Go uh, USA. It's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. Like periodically somebody starts doing stuff with the ingredients of hops, uh, of, of beer that no one's ever done before. And it creates national tradition. It creates uh, the Pilsners or it creates uh, Cascale or it creates uh, Hellas. Uh, Hellas is not a good example because that comes from Pilsner. Um, Weizenbeer, um, whatever it is. Uh, it's a new and weird way of making beer that no one else does. And... Uh, when Americans started brewing with these hops, they started pushing the uh, use of them later and later in the uh, brewing process, and it and it and there were all these assumptions about how hops uh, behaved in beer that were based on using the hops in traditional places in the brewing process. And when Americans started using them in really different places, all those rules uh, seemed to be out the window and. Uh, they actually, like, it, you know, old German brewing manuals, which were considered biblically, you know, valid. They're just absolutely 100%. You can rely on these. Right. <laughs> um, it turns out they're not so true. And and one of those absolute articles of faith uh, and belief and, and, I guess, physics, <laughs> people thought, was that if you, if you put hops in... Uh, later so that they're not subjected to a long boil or maybe they're not even subjected to heat at all they right. will you will get you'll get no bitterness right that's that was the thinking and uh, now we're learning that's not true at all that's wildly not true um, and so uh, again Stan Hieronymus who is the hops king and if you're not subscribed to his hop queries newsletter which is free he sends it out once a month um, you should definitely sign up for that because it always has great stuff including dun, 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 this data that we have in front of us um, so he 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 had uh, in in one of these recently uh, some research from ballast point brewery so this was the old ballast point when they were owned by a big multinational company that could do uh, uh, research. Um, they did some research to figure out what the utilization, uh, that is to say how much uh, bitterness could be pulled out of a hop if you put it in different parts of the, 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 the brewing process. Right. So if you put it in the mash, 
uh, which is before the kettle. So before you would traditionally put in uh, the hops, you get a 9.1% or okay. 9%. So not, not very much utilization. Right. You're only getting 9% uh, the, the bitterness out of there. If you do a 60-minute boil uh, in their system, so every system is going to do this slightly differently, but in their, uh, I think, 100, 150-barrel brewery, uh, you get 44%. Uh, and I think these are averages. Yeah. So then, uh, breweries, uh, one of the things breweries started to do was to add whirlpool hops, uh, as a way of, uh, of really goosing the flavors and aromas and, and traditionally, and actually this is not a new thing, but it's, it's new in the way Americans did it, which was, they were just putting profound amounts in, in the whirlpool. And, so and that for, means just for the novice, the whirlpool happens after after you take it off the heat after but the while boil. the word is still hot yeah, yeah. so, so it's hot but you're transferring it into the whirlpool and you're steeping them really right. so instead of boiling them it's like a tea you're, you're steeping them okay and the idea was uh that if you did this you would get very little bitterness because um the only people that ever did it like the the uh the english did this a bit um in fact when i was at harvey's uh i learned that they do it at harvey's um, and and uh, when I was in Belgium, I learned that they did a, they routinely did this in Belgium too. But they just do a tiny bit, a right. little, you know, just to give it a little oomph. Yeah. Well, it turns out you get twenty nine percent if you put it in the whirlpool. So uh, whatever that is, like seventy five percent as much as if you do a sixty minute boil. So right. you're getting a ton of bitterness. Yeah, which is completely uh, opposite of what people thought. Yeah, you thought everyone thought, well, you'll just get. All the, all the aroma, but no bitterness, you know, flavor and aroma. But no, you're getting a lot of bitterness. And brewers found this out. The reason they did the research is because brewers were putting beer in and they were plugging in. There, there are these algorithmic uh, calculators that tell you how bitter your beer is going to be. Right. They calculate IBUs based on this old thinking. And it would say, oh, I have a, you know, I have a, a 30 IBU beer. And then people would taste these things and they would be scraping their mouths, you know, because they were so bitter. And brewers starting to realize, wait a second, we're getting a lot of bitterness. Yeah. <laughs> and these places we're not supposed to be getting bitterness. And it's just because we they were adding so much of it. Yeah. So that's that's fascinating. So now we're now we're learning that. And so people are putting fewer and fewer hops in at the at the start of boil. Yeah. And so let's go to the other side though. What about the flavor and aroma part? Uh, in other words, if you put hops in at the sixty minute for a sixty minute boil versus putting them in the whirlpool or even dry hopping at the end. Yeah. So you get you get the cool thing about the other thing Americans discovered is that when you put them in different places, I mean, brewers always knew you put them in different places, you get different characters, but right. um, uh, you can really exaggerate, accentuate that. And so if you, if you put it in at the start of boil, you get largely bitterness, um, though the quality of bitterness will depend on the constituent elements of the hop. So you get, um, the Germans always talk about how they have a fine bitterness. Um, <laughs> their noble hops are so fine. Yes. So very like soft and, you know, elegant bitterness. Whereas American bitterness, and, and the truth is, I actually believe this. This is actually, in my experience, borne out by the, by the, uh, the sensory. Um, you know, Americans can often be like cheese grater, like, oh, whew, that's rugged. Um, <laughs> uh, so you, you want to have a, a bittering hop that will give a fine bitterness. And then the later you put it in the, the boil, the more you get uh, flavor and aroma compounds left uh, in there. Uh, the flavor and aroma compounds are in the essential oil of the hop. Mm -hmm. So uh, as, uh, as you can imagine, those boil off quite quickly. So 
um, you get more and more of them the later you put them in, in the boil. And if you put them in, in the just the steeping part, you get even more. And then there's the dry hopping process where you get largely aroma compounds. Although even there, now people are putting in so many hops that we're finding that there are other uh, parts of the hops uh, that contribute bitterness that are that are not the alpha acids, which don't contribute any in that dry hopping, right. the traditional bittering element. Um, we're getting things from uh, humulinones, as we learned from uh, our friend Tom Shellhammer down at, at your Oregon State University, mm-hmm. uh, as well as yeah, go beefs, um, <laughs> <laughs> as as well as uh, polyphenols and other elements. So there's a lot of bitterness that comes from other stuff, and I. You and I have talked about this a lot. We, it, it does seem like, even though it's bitterness, not all bitterness is the same. Yeah. Um, yeah. Bit, you know, you put it a bittering charge gives a different kind of bitterness than you get when you when you do it other places. Yeah, I mean, it's a weird thing to talk about your perception of bitterness, but I feel like the sort of the bitter charge you put in creates this sort of, I don't know, uh, I don't know what the right lexicon is to use, but maybe sort of this deep bitterness that's just underlies the whole beer but then later that bitterness can kind of dance on your tongue in different ways it's like less more shallow yeah it feels to me like the bitter charge gives a sharp bitterness like zing yeah and later on it's more um tannic or vegetal mm-hmm. bitterness yeah I don't know, somehow so this is sort of a co-evolution all of these hops were developed with these amazing flavor and aroma uh, characteristics. And then the brewers figured out how to brew with them to maximize the flavor and aroma and then figured out sort of the ways in which bitterness was controlled and, and, and contributed to the beer. Yeah, and I think the last thing we really have to talk about is dry hopping, which has become the character uh, characteristic feature of all these hop, uh, all these uh, hoppy American styles. Yes. Um, and uh, what's so fascinating is the hazy thing came out. Uh, when the hazy thing came out, everyone was trying to figure out, is there anything different with with hazy IPAs as opposed to other IPAs? And one thing that really seems to be a big feature there is that the hazy IPA brewers were putting their, their hops in while fermentation was still happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that seems to partly contribute to the haziness. It seems to stabilize the haziness. That's mm-hmm. part of the issue. But the other thing that really happens um, and now we've uh, a bunch of research has happened to look into this is a thing called biotransformation. Yeah. So you have chemical, you have chemistry, ha- biochemistry happening when you have uh, yeast going, and it and it turns out that uh, the the terpenes are the the flavor and aroma compounds in hops. Right. Uh, in in the essential oil. So and uh, other things. <laughs> right. That's right. Not only hops. Um, very closely related uh, uh, product that's uh, also big in the Northwest. Yes. Uh, has those as and well. And Lula in the Northwest, by the way. That's true. So Ours is better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> so things like um, the classic uh, uh, things that you'll read when you read about the, the hop elements, um, things like humulone and uh, caryophylline and pinene and those are all terpenes Mm -hmm. and the interesting thing is uh in the presence of um active yeast those uh terpenes can be biotransformed uh which is the chemical modification of Mm -hmm. the terpenes so that they will be transformed from one into another so like uh 
geraniol, which is one, to citronellol, which is another. It's a classic kind of right. transformation that happens. Wow. Um, so you're getting you're getting the quality of the hops uh, in, in with dry hopping, but you're also getting a, a, the quality of a fermentation acting on the hops, right. which is super interesting. And does this? Do you think this changes with the yeast strain you use? Apparently it does. Apparently the yeast strain and the hops both affect that. So, so it takes a lot of trial and error to figure out which hops and which yeast sort of play well together. That Yeah, it's exactly right. And um, originally, uh, one of the first breweries to do this was uh, the Alchemist in, in Vermont. And a lot and, and their, ye- their yeast became available. And a lot of breweries making hazy IPAs were using their, their yeast strain. And, and it, and it does do this predictable thing with, with hops, Mm -hmm. it seems like. So it creates a flavor characteristic that a lot of people associate, uh, with the Vermont, um, school of hazy IPA brewing. Right. But then people were, were doing other strains of yeast, uh, and they were finding that, uh, the, those biotransformations work differently and they get a different character when they use those. And uh, I think, you know, you can start doing the math in your head when you think about all the yeast strains and all the, the hops, uh, and it, it can kind of make your, your mind go crazy. But, uh, <laughs> but now other breweries are working with other other hop strain, other yeast strains to, to figure out what, what uh, you know, what kind of house character they like. Yeah. Well, we should probably wrap this up pretty soon, but I'll just say one thing, which is I think this is one of the things that, um, you know, kind of... Uh, I guess as an economist, I would say this, but sort of the wisdom of the crowds, like there's so many breweries now running so many different experiments that they're all learning from each other at a rate much, much faster than you would otherwise. When there's only 10, 12 brewers around, then you're not going to learn a lot very quickly. And so these kinds of innovations and these kinds of the kind of progress that we've made, uh, particularly in terms of hops in, 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 uh, in America, wouldn't have happened at all, perhaps, and certainly not at the rate without without there being just all of these craft brewers and this sort of, I don't know, ethic or, or, uh, or culture of, of sharing and collaboration. You're exactly right. And a cool thing that's happening is now America has, uh, we, we started all this, but now the cat's out of the bag and uh, other countries that have other brewing traditions and think about beer in different ways are taking the lessons that uh, the Americans discovered and applying them to the way they think about beer and they're getting very different results. And, and mm-hmm. yeah. uh, I, it, the best example for me is, is England. Uh, when I was there, I was, I was just so delighted to find <laughs> that there was this thing that I called the juicy cascale, which is, uh, you know, the four, the 3.8 to 4.2% cascale that uses American hops the same way, but at a slightly lower level. Uh, but you know it, it uses mm-hmm. them in in casks, so you're getting much more yeast character inter, inter, interaction with all this stuff, um, and they're producing beers yeah. like uh, absolutely unlike anything the United States has. Um, totally, you know they they took our thing and and now yeah, they're they're phenomenal. doing their own thing. It's, I think it's that, different. Uh, the, and it's very cool. You know, the, if you think about the flavor profile of beer on a spectrum, uh, that that spectrum has just exploded over the last you know. 10, 20 years, and now the kinds of flavors that you can, you can, you get, and you expect in beer have just like become this much, much, much broader spectrum, and it's it's made the the experience of a beer drinker and also the dynamism of the industry much, much greater. Yeah, totally. And you know, I think I think it will keep going. I, I don't know. We'll we'll see. Uh, 
uh, it does seem like maybe in, in the United States, we've kind of experimented as far as we can go. We, we went from West Coast IPAs now to hazy IPAs, mm-hmm. and now it seems like we're coming back to a hybrid of the West and the East, which is kind of my favorite styles. I love the saturated, aromatic, juicy uh, quality characteristic of uh, the East Coast, but I love our little bitterness, uh, which we and you and I <laughs> both like that. So we put yeah, our, yeah. in our you, beer you, yesterday, you we made sure that a decent that bitter charge. Bitterness to- to, to balance the all those uh, sweet juicy flavors yeah yeah so it seems like we're all uh, just what you said you know we're all learning this stuff simultaneously I, you know uh, five years ago when I was on the beer Bible uh, tour and I was traveling around the country I was traveling to some places that were completely isolated from the west coast to the east coast and mm-hmm. they were also discovering a lot of stuff about IPA that everybody else was discovering because they were doing the same thing you know they were they were pushing the hops later and later and they were finding out oh my god I'm putting them in the whirlpool and they're really bitter so I better <laughs> not have so many uh, hops in the start of the boil and they were, you know everybody was chasing the same thing and discovering the same thing so um, you know it, it's a, uh, a process that uh, has been practiced all over the country now, and uh, for yeah. uh, how many, how many generations? Yeah, and the fact that, that uh, as so I mentioned our, before, our the fact that there's an ethos in craft beer of of being sort of uh, open and sharing and uh, generous to each other means that um, these lessons didn't have to be learned individually over time; they could be shared, and and so progress was made so quickly. Totally, I remember. Uh, I know we do have to shut down. We're running long, but uh, but I will say I'll tell this one last anecdote. Uh, a brewer once told me a secret uh, about uh, kettle souring. This was a few years ago when kettle souring was was getting going. He had discovered kettle souring had be- become a thing, and a lot of brewers were doing it. And he figured out a way to do it that reduced some of the off flavors that some other brewers were getting. And he said, um, "Would you please not write about it?" Uh, <laughs> for like six months because we um i i by six months it'll be all over everybody will know about this and everybody will do it be doing it but i'd like just a few months where we have it ourselves (laughs) and we're making better beer than everyone else before everyone finds out and it's and it's just because you know that stuff travels it's impossible to keep secrets in the industry yeah yeah so i'll just uh a couple quick things be uh as we're wrapping up um, the varieties, uh, just some data here. So the varieties that are increasing uh, really quickly right now, as we mentioned, Citra is the king and still increasing a lot. Mosaic is uh, very closely tied to Citra and is um, is very popular and still growing. Eldorado, Strata, Sabro, and now, and we saw this, the Idaho, there's this whole strain of Idaho hops that are becoming really popular really quickly. Yeah, the Idaho 7 is this... Uh, uh interesting i get a lot of like dark red fruits out of it um and i I, i'm interested in we you know idaho is uh not uh, a lot of the idaho acreage is sold to anheuser-busch so it's kind of like not so well known but idaho has a really different climate idaho is a rocky mountain state it's not a, a west coast state so it's i think I think it's interesting what Idaho is doing, and it's definitely a different climactic climatic region. Um, and so the Idaho Seven is probably characteristic of uh, what you can do there. And we should just I should just mention that Michigan is is really uh, been doing a lot of innovation, and there's a bunch of Michigan specific new hops um, which are coming out, and they don't have a ton of acreage, and we probably 
you know, nationwide, we're not going to see those for years and years, but um, that's also interesting. And, you know, the Midwest, again, very different climate than we have here. Yeah. So it turns, it turns out we're already long and we didn't get into like half the stuff we intended to talk about, like Neo-Mexicanus hops and a bunch of different particular hop varieties. But, but I will. I know. Neo-Mexicanus. Damn. How do we not talk about that? Like, so uh, let's, let's at least bookmark it and say that uh, Neo-Mexicanus, so that is native hops from New Mexico, uh, are now uh, a huge part of the genome. And yes. we, the, the hops that we had yesterday, we had uh, both of the Medusa and the Sabro had Neo-Mexicanus in them. Yes. So these are, they're just, they're appearing in a lot of the, the more, uh, the, the newer hops. People are breeding in these Neo-Mexicanus. So it's a whole fascinating story. And I see now we have to have a whole podcast on Neo-Mexicanus hops All right. coming soon. All right, we'll do it soon. Uh, but I will yeah. just say, uh, as, uh, as you wait, uh, with bated breath for that podcast, you can um, go to Jeff's blog, the Beer Vona blog. Uh, and um, the last time he's done this, I think, was in January. But you can look for this um, posts on uh, new hop varieties. Uh, and so I have one post that's from January 21st. Uh, it says a whole lot of new hop varieties. And so you can go there and, and, and read up on some of the new stuff. And by now, there's a bunch of new things. But a lot of the things here that, um, that he's listed are ones that are quickly growing and becoming... Uh, big, for example, the Pato hop. Uh, it's just one. Um, and you can learn a little bit more about New Mexicanus hops. So until we have a chance to do that podcast, there's a way to quench your thirst. Yes. All right. Yeah. So we've decided that the Hazelicious from Rubens Brews in Seattle is our, our Sherpa. And by the way, <laughs> I'm more convinced this is a good Sherpa because I'm sitting here sipping it. And it really is quite... Uh, really hits the mark for me in terms of sessionability, quaffability, uh, this lovely saturated flavor that's sort of uh, really features passion fruit um, with a nice bitter uh, bitter um, uh, base. So uh, I highly recommend it. Indeed. Yeah. I can't... Ruben's rock, so we should we should have <laughs> we should have sherped them already. So we may have. I can't keep track. Well, yeah, yeah, right. You're, you're, you're totally right. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a very good chance we have. Uh, but two times is not too many for such a good brewery. Yeah, that's right. And I will say one last thing. Normally here we would have the mailbag, but we have no mailbag, and I think it's partly because we've been a little bit less consistent here during the uh, coronavirus, but. Do send us some mailbag stuff. We would love to get uh, your feedback. Uh, I'm guessing, it's just a wild guess here, but I'm guessing you have thoughts about hops. So let us know your favorite hops, uh, hop stories that you're interested in. Um, if you want to get us prime the pump for the Neo-Mexicanus, holler about that. Whatever you have, please uh, send us an email or a, a tweet, and Patrick will give us the info on that soon. But But give us some feedback. Yeah, yeah. So you can send your feedback to Jeff at beervonablog.com or you can uh, contact us on Twitter at beervonapod. That's a shared uh, Twitter feed from both of us. Um, uh, you should also subscribe to us on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us. Five stars, please. That helps other listeners find the show. Uh, so yeah, uh, reach out to us. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, comments, suggestions, whatever. Uh, Jeff blogs at the Birvana blog, and he tweets at at Birvana. And Patrick tweets at Birvanomics. And so we actually have stuff to cheers with this time. We do. Yeah, yeah. yeah, even though we can't actually clink our glasses together. So I don't know how no. we do that. But uh, Well, that's okay. I'll, I'll 
I'll clink mine yeah. with my 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 own self. Uh, so I have the Hazelicious from uh, Rubens in my hand. Very nice. And I have a uh, Fortside from Vancouver, Washington, newest IPA. Nice. I, I, right. I'm, not getting, I'm not getting any good tinks here. That's good. I, I've got a can. I got Actually, a can. I have two glasses. Wait a minute. I have two glasses. There, there you go. Yeah, all, right. <laughs> all right. Cheers, Jeff. Cheers, Patrick. <laughs>